He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, April 15, 2023, episode 144, Coach Steve Feinsilver. Oh my goodness, this is a tumultuous time. Our U.S. Supreme Court mired in controversy and scandal, Justice Clarence Thomas taking lavish trips, bribes galore, secret real estate deals, I'm old enough to remember Judge Abe Fortas. How can I remember him? Because it was a big deal in the Jewish community. Johnson nominated a Jewish guy, and then he flamed out because he had taken money from an influencer. You can't do that. Judges need to be above board, and Fortas walked away, and LBJ paved the way. And back in the day, there was some honor, right? People could work together. Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American justice, he walked away from the job when George Herbert Walker Bush had the power to replace him. That turned out to be a darn shame. Previously, Bush had appointed David Souter, who wasn't that bad from a moderate's perspective, but holy cow, Thurgood Marshall got replaced by Clarence Thomas. We should have listened to Anita Hill, who told us he was a weird guy, a bad guy. Joe Biden didn't handle it great, and now we're stuck with not just an incompetent Clarence Thomas, but a guy who was compromised and taken advantage of and bought and paid for with a crazy wife to boot. And we've got a lot of troubles as a result. I remember... Another federal judge who was Jewish, Sherman Feinsilver, Steve's father. Holy cow, was Sherman Feinsilver a big deal since he was a kid. My dad grew up. My dad went to West, played some football. Sherman Feinsilver went to North. He played better football. He was all city, went to CU, played there until he hurt his knees. My dad played some basketball, some baseball, and football. Sherm Feinsilver's more of a big guy, as was Steve. And when we grew up together, we hung out a lot, but we had different sports. He was started weightlifting and wrestling, and I'm shooting hoops. You'll hear about all of that, but goodness, our ties go so far back. And George Washington High School was the place that it all happened. Steve Feinsilver remained at GW. He's written a book called Hard Knocks and Dirty Socks. We have it linked in the show notes. You can go to Amazon. It's a good book. His dad had been appointed by Richard Nixon, and then he served for over 20 years. Before that, he'd been on the Denver District Court bench. He used to get elected to the Denver County Court. Holy cow, was he popular. Sherman Feinsilver. What a big name to follow, which Steve did, and then his kids, my goodness. 
They are unbelievable wrestlers. Go to my Twitter site. You can see Matt Wrestling. All of the fine silvers. Amazing family. Amazing wrestlers. Seven fine kids. Josh, Felicia, Mary, Matt, Mitch, Rebecca, and Zach. And holy cow, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Josh and Matt's birthday. April 15, 1998. A little later that year, I had my firstborn, Benjamin. Gosh, it's an interesting time. We all worry about kids. Just back to serious stuff and federal law enforcement. You got to think about Sherm Feinsilver. Richard Nixon started the war on drugs, and it's never been more serious and fatal and horrible. United States Attorney General addressed the country on April 14, to inform us that we've identified the source of this fentanyl epidemic. And it's China with the derivative parts, Chinese nationals anyway getting involved, and the Sinaloa cartel, El Chapo and his kids. Just like the fine silvers turned out great, tough kids, look what El Chapo has brought to us Over 100,000 deaths just in 2021 from fentanyl. Can you believe it? I can't. I'm starting to represent people affected by fentanyl. Who do we sue? Anybody and everybody we can. These kids are dying. And we all need to take an approach. I've never heard the AG call out a country. And when you think about these demons, these mobsters unleashed on America, they are trying to hurt us. It's like the opium wars, right? They're poisoning us. And that's the word that Merrick Garland used. And it's serious. Do we have international conflicts? Plenty. As you know, I think Donald Trump is tied in with Putin. Now Putin's tied in with Xi. Did you hear Trump Praise she is so smart, so good-looking, and Putin, too, how smart they are. He's down with that authoritarianism, and it puts us at great risk. As the legal news tightens on Donald Trump, he is a champion obstructor. He never wants to go to trial, and these trials are happening. Fox News, too, we're going to be all over that. But a crisis in America has to do with education, Steve Feinsilver knows about that just as surely as he knows his seven children. He's been teaching over 40 years. He has seen success and failure, and right now it's failure, and he's calling out Denver Public Schools. That's what his book's all about. He could have written about his amazing sets of boys. All of them got wrestling rides to Duke University. So many state champions, but his book isn't about that. It's called Hard Knocks and Dirty Socks Through the Eyes of Coach by Steve Feinsilver, a guy who never quit. When Steve was told he wasn't good enough to play college football, he said bullshit, and he worked hard. He gets up earlier than anybody else, even on Sunday. There's a guy described in a song by our troubadour Dave Gunders, my dear friend. You are going to hear it soon, along with a great discussion of other current events like the loss of female reproductive rights, 
But gosh, Dave Gunders has a perfect song for the Fine Silvers in a lot of ways. Eddie Don't Quit is about a high school guy who shows a lot of tenacity. And he's a big shot, just like Steve Feinsilver has become a big shot in Denver Public Schools, but now he's got a message. And gosh, we talk about his family. But then we move on toward the end to all the problems at Denver Public Schools. I urge you to read his book, but give a listen to my conversation with Troubadour Dave Gunders after a word from my pal Michael Bailey. Episode 144, Coach Steve Feinsilver. For your enjoyment, tell a friend. Subscribe, five stars on Apple. Mighty nice if you'd be so kind. Enjoy. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com. LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig, 303-734-7156, 303-734-7156. I am Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Troubadour. Craig. Troubadour. How are you? Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Where are you? I'm I'm calling in from Snowmass Village, Aspen, Colorado. Pitkin County. Yes, sir. I know it well. Well, I wish you were here uh, skiing with us. Have a good time, my friend. You gave us a great song for a very special show. I have you as one of my all-time dearest friends. And then I got to talking with Steve Feinsilver, who was such a dear friend back when I was growing up. You know those kind of pals? Yeah, the pals you make when you're still a young man, kind of roving with your tribe, even before you could drive, right? Exactly. And uh, yep. we we had a lot in common, but then we didn't. You know why? Because we played different sports. 
would be like you and me. What would be the odds we would be friends because your sports were not my sports? Take skiing, for example. Are you going to call that a sport? I don't know what else to call it. A passion. And you are great at it, right? Double black diamonds. And no, those days, those days are kind of behind me. But I'm bit. gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> give you skiing because we're gonna talk about what sports you're good at. Isn't that the measure of a boy or a man? It was when I was growing up because sports was almost everything. Sure. All right. Yeah. Let me let me ask you some more questions about what's a real sport. What about swimming? I was a swimmer. That's why um, I'm asking you. And was it a real sport? It was not my love. I'll tell you that. It was really good for me, and it strengthened me in different different ways. But um, as a sport, um, I mean, of course, it's a sport. It's in the Olympics and everything. But another sport, you can kick my ass, and you've proved it many times. And you have your own pool. Okay, now is golf a sport? I think so. Let me answer that. You're the one... You're the one to answer that for me. And okay. why wouldn't it be? What about baseball? Why wouldn't it be? You'll give me baseball, right? Definitely give Isn't me Isn't that really the essence of being an American, to be able to throw a ball? Yeah, I mean, and to catch yeah, it. I, I, yeah, baseball, I, I wish I could, football. I wish, right. Yeah, that was one. I could catch a ball. In my day, I could catch a ball, and I could run pretty fast to get to it. And then the, the infield would have to come way out because my my throws were weak. I never had a good arm. Okay, I here's the thing. I'm competitive yeah. with Steve Ponsilver, and he couldn't really yep. throw or catch that great. He was just super big. Do you remember Arnold Schwarzenegger? He's even a little older than you are, Troubadour Dave Gunders. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. But do you remember when he first came to fame? Yeah, well, he was... Um, he was like the world Mr. Universe. Yeah. He was a bodybuilder. Yeah. Right? And Steve saw that after my sister broke his heart. Wait till you hear that story. It involves oh. wild animals. He dedicated himself to weightlifting and he kind of became like Arnold. And oh my God, he got chiseled and he won awards for being a great athlete. And then in college, he kind of got discriminated against the UNC because coach didn't think he was big enough and maybe he was too Jewish with a name like Fine Silver. But you know what happened? He didn't quit. He rededicated himself. He got up. In fact, throughout his career, he gets up at like 4.30 in the morning, works on Sundays, never quits. And then he became a great player at Washburn University in Kansas, where he became all this, all that, and he became a coach, great educator, and he proved the point that his athleticism is probably better than mine. Through his DNA, the fine silver wrestlers, did you get my text to you showing yes, all these I did. guys? I, wa- I watched him, yeah, in the state tournament, yep. Can you imagine yep. producing two sets of uh, twins, four boys, all of them champion wrestlers at Duke, NCAA participants, state high school champions, Josh came in runner-up, the others champions, all those weight classes. Wow, the athletic yep. chains pouring through Steve and his father, the, the late Sherman Silver, a federal judge, what a powerful dynamic memorable, important figure in Denver, Colorado, big part of my life. 
Sherman finds over and he gets to talk about him. And he played at CU before he screwed up his knees in West High School before that, playing center. You know, that's a rough position, you know. Yeah. No, he went yeah. to North, yeah. Sherm Fine Silver went to North, kind of grew up with my dad. Anyway, I have such a complicated relationship with Coach Fine Silver. Thanks for letting me go on about it. Everybody will hear it in a minute. But when I talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger and what a chiseled guy he was and probably still is, your song, Eddie Don't Quit, it's like a stone man. And when I hugged Steve after this interview, that guy's cut like a stone, man. Wow. Wow. Well, that, that takes, yeah, it's a lifetime endeavor, I mean, to keep yourself in that kind of shape. And uh, what a legacy to have all sons, all his sons have uh, succeeded like that in his sport. And his book is really good. Did he have, did yeah. he have daughters? Yes. Did he have daughters? Beautiful daughters. And were they athletic? Yes. Yes. And they kind of led the way. He tells the story, although he had seven kids, so how many stories can he tell there's only so much time and the interview right. is about him pulling down the pants on denver public schools where he's worked for over four decades he thinks there's a lot of bullshit going on and he's right he wrote it all down and uh, that's his book that we're going to try to sell and you get a big preview here so we couldn't talk just about his kids we had to talk about other things but I'm glad you ranked the major sports. And wrestling, if you think about it, that's probably the ultimate sport, right? To be athletic, et cetera. Well, it's a, it certainly is an ancient sport, isn't it? And kind I of mean, I, uh, fundamental to survival. Yeah. 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 Well, the Greeks, I mean, we we know they, I mean, that was probably one of the early Olympic, you know, Olymp, Olympic sports. Right. Uh, was wrestling. Yeah. Wrestling field and track you know track and field and everything yeah yeah so good for them i know what else is going on so many interesting things going on i want everybody to hear eddie don't quit but i have to talk about a few things with you because i thought about your daughter rachel does she sing the background on eddie don't quit or is it sarah <laughs> oh you caught me with a surprise question um I think it was Sarah on that one. I think it's Sarah. Now, that could have been, I believe that was Sarah. I, I need to listen I know to for it again. Sure but you see, that all it's a good, I, I know yeah. for everybody can listen and try to decide. They, they should know your girl's voice is better than you at this point. <laughs> but it's one of the two, okay? Yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and I don't have bad memory problems like you. You are quite a bit older. <laughs> And it was Rachel Gunders who we had on when Roe v. Wade was going bye-bye. And now it's not just being left up to the states. A judge, a Trump appointee out of Amarillo, is trying to get rid of the drug that causes medical abortions early on. It's been used for over 20 years. It's a yeah. nightmare. And at a certain point, as women's rights keep getting stripped away, Florida with a six-week timetable for abortion. We need to get your daughter Rachel back on. And I'm sure it was Rachel, not Sarah, but they probably both feel passionately. And I just wonder what you think about that. How's that going to end? In the U.S. Supreme Court with corrupt Clarence Thomas 
How did this end? I don't know. And, you know, I, well, uh, first of all, I was glad to, to see that the Supreme Court um, put a temporary, temporary stay on that district court's ruling, yes, right? they did. Uh, yeah, allowing allowing it to continue, but it's like for a week or something. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it brings up all kinds of unsettling questions as to what states, what lengths they will go to to prosecute. Um, you know, the sister, say, of a, you know, of a young of a young woman who needs an abortion and uh, drives her across state lines or or, you know, something like that. Or the um, father you know, who does it out or, of Idaho. Or, or the father. Yeah. And, and, and how it gets into into into, you know, rights as, as citizens, pri- rights to privacy. I mean, it it, it, it seems to be head, uh, doing, heading towards, a, a you know, uh, a, a real a real a real battle there, doesn't it? And uh, it's terrible to hear how states, you know, this is what's this is what's you know I think makes us all proud as Americans. You can you can drive from one state to another state anywhere, anywhere, anytime. No one stops you. No ID to show. You you just drive through, right? It's the right. great United States. Uh, anyway, this goes against it goes against all all that we're founded on. I I, I think it's really really concerning. Gosh, you are articulate. Like Morgan Carroll, you were good enough to comment to me the last episode. Former Senator Morgan Carroll was very impressive. I want to announce she has selected a job at Berg Simpson. I know those guys very well. The Berg brothers played a lot of basketball against them. We'll get them back on. They have the power to put her in a position to do great legislative things. You spoke to me about Morgan Carroll, and I know you were impressed. What stood out for you? Well, I, um, you know, she seemed like a really, she seems thoughtful and and um, but like a like the like the kind of of person who gets stuff done. You know, reach across to 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 reach across the aisle. You know, I mean, she was she was the. The, 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 the she she ran the Democratic Party here in in Colorado right until what last year until she was the chairperson last week yeah until until last week okay so she stepped out of that but um, I just thought that she was she was very uh, insightful and you know and 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 cool a cool headed individual yes just like you yeah cool daddy what well, inspired uh, Eddie no quit. Well, I, you know, I thought, I mean, Eddie, don't quit. It's, it's, it's about persistence. It's about the types of people who do amazing things in their life. This particular song zeroed in on um, how that can lead to a very um, imbalanced and unfulfilling life if it goes too far. Right. And in some ways, yeah. it kind of fits the fine silver story, working hard, achieving your dreams. But that guy was motivated by money and reading Steve's book. And we're going to get right to it after your song. You'll see that uh, you don't get rich being a teacher. And uh, even if you are a college wrestler, it doesn't often lead to, you know, uh, the NBA or some professional sport. Although the fine silver boys keep wrestling and they will for a while for Israel. And maybe they make some money. But you know what I mean? Your guy in the song, he was motivated by what? Fame, fortune, that sort of thing. Yes, power. Power. Yeah, power. Was this guy power. Eddie in your song? Is he a good guy or a bad guy, or just one of the guys? He's just uh, he's he's a guy who's kind of come off the rails. Um, I I think he's I talk in the beginning about how he well he didn't have his father's 
support in in what in what he was doing in his early days and how you know he his he dad had, he was on the road. Yeah, Steve's yeah, father yeah, was yeah. there. You'll hear that Steve turns yeah. up remembering his federal judge dad driving to his games at Washburn. I got Steve to tear up a couple times, but keep telling me about this guy Eddie, who inspired well, this him. And this goes to Steve, who I'm sure is an amazing father to have his have his sons follow, you know, in, in his footsteps. But uh, Eddie in the song never had that, and and it, it was a it was a scar that he you know that he um, he had to wear his his whole life. That you know that's and I, that's true. If you don't have if you don't have that a, a proud parent, you know, hopefully two, but at least one who helps you along and is interested in what you do and and is your is your advocate you know um that's the kind of thing that leaves leaves a, a hole in a person's um psyche you know that and it's sometimes i think people can spend their whole lives trying to get over it trying to move past it and i think i speak on behalf of rachel and sarah i'll be their pro bono lawyer when i say they forgive you for forgetting who does backup on this amazing song, Eddie Don't Quit. <laughs> they may both have sung on it. I'll, I'll have to find out, Greg. <laughs> Let's have everybody listen. I'll know when I listen. I'll All right, don't, don't try those double black slopes, okay? Have fun in Aspen. Ski well. I appreciate it. You be well. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.
did it with drive. Blind ambition built up an empire fast with his sweat and blood. People know his name. Far from the town beyond the county, man stands alone with his pain. And it don't quit till he's top of the heap. If he ain't making money, he's incomplete. There's no connection to the folks he meets. Blames it on his own man. And his heart quit when he's hitting the wall. Realized he had nobody to call. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Hey, I have some exciting news. I am starting my brand new law firm. It's Attitude, mine. The legal skills, mine. The support staff, incredible. Find us online soon at CraigsColoradoLaw.com. Find me right now on Twitter at CraigsColorado. 
Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Okay, many highlights of my podcast, but having Coach Steve Feinsilver in studio, that's a highlight. Thanks for coming over. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you, and uh, the few minutes we had together to reminisce have been amazing. It's not like we have a lot to reminisce about, only about 60 years now? Yes, we go way back. I don't think I met you until I moved into uh, the neighborhood around GW when I was going into fourth grade. That's when we met, and uh, I learned real quickly not to play basketball with you, but I did. I tried. And then you kind of humored me and, and uh, were very supportive when, I, when we chose different sports. I was thinking about the difference between you and me. We have a lot of commonalities, but when it came to sports, we both loved them, but we loved it in a different way. And boy, did we have different talents. We were good friends. We lived around the block from each other, hung out, did a lot of stuff together. We almost became family when you courted my sister. We'll get to that. But when it came to sports, I liked to play basketball. You liked to play football. I liked to play baseball. You were a track guy, shot put, discus. Correct. And then I liked to play golf. And, and I you wrestled. liked to wrestle. So every sport was just a completely different set of skills. Very true. And see, you were stupid enough to play basketball against me, but did you notice I never wrestled you or lined <laughs> up against you in football? I, did, I noticed that later. But never then. Well, I, I kept trying to play basketball, and every time I tried, I was, uh, I was beaten, but not too humiliated, so I kept coming back. Oh, those were the days. And uh, what a great athlete you were, and you were a lot bigger in your book, and we're here to talk about hard knocks and dirty socks. Through the eyes of coach, Steve Feinsilver, legendary Denver Public School coach, teacher, He's got so much to say, and he's not holding back because, let's face it, we're in Act 3 of our life. Let's just lay it out there. Let the truth be out there, and my gosh, our education system is in trouble, and you know a lot of things because you've done it for, what, four decades plus? 44 years, yes. Started in 79. Yes, you know things. I do including my family, like I know yours, were kind of related. Yes. My uncle, Nate Silverman, my grandpa, Harry's brother, who had Republic Optical, married Anne Feinsilver. That's right. And she's part of your father's family, I Correct. Assume. Yes. So we're kind of related. Right. Through marriage. Yes. Uh, Mishpacha. Yes. We're all kind of related. Plus... I wish I had a nickel for every time somebody said, hey, your name's Fine Silver. Do you ever get confused for a Silverman? All the time. Yes. I've had people say that to me for years. Anyway, we knew each other so darn well, and I, I, I knew your brother Jay, Susie, but oh my gosh, your parents, Annette and Shermie Fine Silver, a federal judge before that, the most popular judge in Denver. We have to get to that, but... Just like I knew your siblings and your parents, you knew mine. You knew Belle, you knew my dad and my mom, and you knew my sister. And my sister, and I have to tell you, she's a regular listener, 
Dr. Nancy Kay grew up Nancy Silverman, valedictorian at George Washington High School, a school which will come up over and over, back when it was illustrious at the height of its powers. And I thought she was sensational, only 13 months younger than me, and we were great friends, and you took an interest in my sister. Can you talk about this, or will your wife get mad? No, I think we're good, because it was a, a few a few minutes ago. So Nancy was, we had common ground because, um, not because uh, we were bright together. She was bright, I wasn't, but it was declared early by her that she was going to become a veterinarian, and everybody who knew me knew that I was going to become a veterinarian. No questions asked. That's what we were both going to be. So we shared some common ground, and then I, as a sophomore in high school, volunteered to rescue orphaned wild animals and so I started raising in addition to a menagerie at the house with dogs and a kinkajou I was able to take in orphaned animals and uh, through the game and fish department and suddenly I had at one point two deer a raccoon and then I had a litter of skunks and I had been uh, this is in the 1960s this is so this was 72 okay 73 and so 72 right right we're so, not that old so Keep nancy going. and i at school when we'd have a minute and we didn't take any of the same classes because i wasn't taking calculus and chemistry and computers i wasn't but we would talk and she wanted to know all about the animals and finally i got the courage and i invited her i said well come over sometime and it, i was shocked and she ultimately said yes fino my nickname she said i will come over she called you fino correct and how did that make you feel? Good, because at least she knew my name. You know, I wasn't sure. And wow. so, and you, so you were one of her brother's best friends. Right, and in the house, you know, with access, you know, back when we grew up together, the fridge at the Silverman's house and the fridge at the Feinsilver's house was always available, and you didn't have to ask. You know, you were just going to help yourself and have, a, have drinks and, and, you know, whatever there might be, whether it's junk food or cookies or... And so... It was, as I recall, a Saturday afternoon. Nancy called the house phone, the one that plugs into the wall. And uh, she said, you know, I'm coming over. I said, yes. Man, I put on some of my dad's men and changed my T-shirt. And there's Nancy. And we played with Alfonso. Well, describe Nancy back then. Nancy was had beautiful skin, long, flowing hair, shiny. She must have used extra conditioner bright, a great conversationalist, a beautiful smile, and she's coming to my house. She was Miss Teen Denver. No doubt. Yes. No doubt. And the valedictorian. Right. But she was just my little sister. Right. So I didn't care. Keep going. Okay. So she's at the house, and we and, and I take her to show her Igor in the basement, who's a kinkajou nocturnal, but for her, I was going to, I woke Igor up, and I fed him some marshmallows. She kind of liked Igor. She petted the dogs, and here we go to the backyard. We go to the backyard and uh, take out Alfonso, the orphaned raccoon who was headed to, at that point to about 10 months old. And so plays with the raccoon and she says, and you have skunks? I said, yes, I have a litter of skunks. And so I reached in a smaller cage and very gently put each skunk of the five on the grass and they're running around crawling on our lap. They're really docile at that point because we had established friendship. I started out by feeding them with an eyedropper, then a bottle, and then ultimately they could evolve to food, like dog food or cat food. And so 
she says to me, well, you know, I don't smell anything. And I said to her, well, they don't have their scent yet, according to the game and fish department, the warden who brought them over. And she said, fine, you know, good. Can I pick one up? I said, yes, of course. And she picks one up and she's petting it. And she puts that one down. And I think it was skunk number two. She picked it up and she said, uh, what just went across my forehead? And I said, well, I don't think they have their scent because, you know, the game warden said they didn't. And she said, oh, okay. A few minutes later, my dad came out and said, son, did one of those skunks, you know, let their scent loose? And then by then, Nancy- Because he smelled something? In the house. And, and Nancy, by then, her eyes are watering a little bit. And I thought to myself, this could derail everything. This what did you have in mind? Well, I wanted to Becoming ask her out on the fish. Yeah, I, mean, I wanted to officially ask her out, and I was scared to. But now she's at my house playing with the skunks. She liked, you know, and I had a, an affirmative on all the other animals. So I was in good shape, I thought. And so she then said, uh, I'm going to go home. The skunk was foreplay? Yes. Oh, okay, keep going. So she goes home, and uh, my dad comes out, and he says, put the skunks away. And he says, clearly, you know, they, they at least one of them, you know, has the scent glands that are now fully functional, son. And he said, uh, what, what are you going to do? He said, we're going to wait a few minutes, then you're going to call Mrs. Silverman. And I didn't have the chance because she called the house. And my dad said to me, and this is way before caller ID, get the phone, son. He actually said something different, but on air, I can't repeat the Yiddish word that he used. And so I answered the phone and with Mrs. Silverman. I mean, he called you a Yiddish name? He did. With Mrs. Dad Sil- would call me Schmuckle occasionally. Right. This was the worst version of that. Okay. <laughs> so you schmuck? No. All right. Well, we'll let it go. Right. And so... Um, but you can curse if you want during this show. Keep maybe going. later. Okay. So typically with Miss Silverman, who was the warmest, kindest person, you know, she was very patient and relaxed, at least around me. So I answer the phone and she says... Stephen Feinsilver. Typically, it's Stevie Feinsilver. Stephen Feinsilver. I said, yes, Mrs. Silverman. She says, what is in Nancy's hair? And I started to say, Mrs. Silverman, um, the skunk can't have, but my dad is there. And he says, he shakes his head no. He was coaching the witness. Right. And he said, and and I said, I don't think they have their scent, but if if she does have that smell, I have heard tomato juice will work. And she says to me, explain what that means. I said, she's have to, going to have to get in the bath or the shower, and you're going to have to pour that on and kind of scrub it in. I've heard that that can neutralize the scent. She says, stay by the phone. So I stayed by the phone, and my dad is sitting there shaking his head. Can I tell you, my brother and I were laughing our asses off. <laughs> Keep going. So I wait by the phone 15 minutes later, phone rings, and she said, Stephen Feinsilver. That didn't work. I still have this heavy smell you know Nancy's got beautiful hair. And I then said, yes, I, I definitely know. <laughs> I wanted to follow with, I've known that for a long time, but I didn't. And so I wait again by the phone and uh, she says, I tried it again, it doesn't work. And then the next phone call, she said, what's the alternative? I said, I've heard lemon juice works. She said, I have some. And at that point I said, maybe set it up to where you can have one more moment with her because this is going to end up with heartbreak. And I said, do you want me to come over and bring some lemon juice? She says, no, stay at home. I have some. The next phone call, it's Stephen Feinsilver. This didn't work. We're going to have to cut her hair. And that's when the dream, the relationship, 
a possible date, a possible veterinarian practice together, it all ended that moment. Did my mother mention how long it had been since my sister had cut her hair? She didn't mention, but I kind of had a hunch because Nancy's hair was way down past the middle of her back. Yeah, so it had been a while, I'm sure. At least it didn't frighten her off from being a veterinarian. Well, that's the positive, but I kind of lost out on that one. Is that when you lost interest in the profession? No, I lost interest in the profession with uh, something that actually ended up bad, but not as traumatic. What's that? So I had completed my um, first semester at Northern Colorado as a pre-science major, and the plan was I was going to play ball, get my undergraduate degree from Northern Colorado in science, then apply and go to the CSU. Oh, yeah, that SOB coach at UNC who never gave a break to minorities or Jewish kids trying to make the team said you were too short, too weak, too this, too that. Correct. I got cut from the team. Yeah, and you wanted to prove them wrong, and boy, did you. And that taught me a lot of resilience. All right. So it's just as well you didn't become a veterinarian, but we need to go back to your parents, can we? Sure. Your father was a big deal. Brag on him. You called him Papa? So Shermie was a big deal in the fact that he had accomplished so much but saw himself as just a regular, normal person. And I think that um, the essence of Shermie Feinsilver was that he never forgot where he came from, which was the West Side, and he never forgot that he had failed miserably because, uh, and it's, uh, there was a beautiful article in Reader's Digest, which he submitted, and it apparently hit it hit big because there were six or seven million copies back then generated with that article in it. And so Shermie flunked out of law school at CU after getting his undergraduate degree and then ended up coming back to the West Side and was told in no uncertain terms, listen, an attorney Rarely does that happen. Going to a CU as a prestigious law school, becoming an attorney and then a judge doesn't happen. And so he then petitioned to go to Westminster Law School, which was known as the Poor Man's Law School, and they let him in under probation. That's so, become DU Law School. Correct. It Storm merged later. School of Law, right. Right. So he then is at Westminster, working at Uncle Johnny, Wine Rich's grocery store by day, and at 5.30 or 6, taking the streetcar to Westminster Law School, going to class, getting back from class at 10.30, and then sitting with my booby, Rebecca Feinsilver, till 1 or 2 in the morning every night for three years to make now, it Now, how open. exactly is Johnny Weinrich, a blessed memory, how is he related to the Feinsilvers? So Johnny married Aunt Doris, and Johnny was quite quite a prankster and just such a rich personality. Johnny married Shermie's older sister, Doris. And Shermie was the youngest. Doris Feinsilver. And then Johnny and Doris had Monaco Lanes. They had a grocery store first, and then they ultimately moved from the grocery store and they became the managers at Monaco Lanes for many, many years, decades. And I was a better bowler than you, even though he was in your family. Uh, no doubt. And he would give me a free bowling balls and unlimited bowling and unlimited pinball. Not only that, you were a better pinball player. Yes. <laughs> yes. You were you were the of the of the fine All silver right. silverman well, uh, tandem. You were the athlete. Uh, yes. But the fine silvers get their revenge. We're gonna get to that. You can't believe the children 
that Steve has laid out there with the help of his beautiful wife, Brenda. I mean, holy cow. It's amazing. But back to your father, and you're shortchanging him. Wasn't he a great athlete? Shermy was a great athlete. I mean, in the sense that brute strength matters. Shermy played football at North and went to see you on a football scholarship. Playing what position? Center. And Shermy was pretty well known uh, on the west side as being kind of the rocket Gibraltar. He, He played both ways. He apparently his senior year, he had seven minutes where he was off the field total. And so he goes to see you and he's playing football, living the dream, and then ruins his knees, both knees. Gives up football, and uh, his athletic career ended there. But uh, people that knew him said that he was pretty tough back in the day. That hurt him his whole life because of his knee problem. Sort of like my brother who had a knee problem in high school. It affects your ability to regulate your weight. Right. Right. So that, the knee problems, and then Shermie had chronic sinus problems, which uh, was diagnosed early because Shermie and Oscar – they lived on Osceola Street. Shermie and Oscar slept on the back porch, and in the winter, they would winterize it with plastic, with Visqueen plastic, and there was a screen door that was insulated, but that was Shermie's room. That's where he slept. Osceola, what, what street? 11th and Osceola. Okay. Right. So that was Shermie's house, and then he had sinus problems and throat problems and uh, a cough that was traced back to the fact that you know he slept five or six months out of the year in, in the brutal cold. Tell me about Oscar and Shermie were brothers, right? Right. Oscar. Oscar, very accomplished. Left-handed cousin. dentist, Oscar was. So left-handed dentist. Um, Shermie uh, did the law thing and then became uh, graduated from Westminster. Well, ultimately. Tell me about their parents. Your, so your Harry, grandparents. Yeah, so Harry Feinsilver worked Harry. on the railroad. Wow. And he was a mail carrier and ultimately got a huge promotion where he got to do security on the rail yard. So he would be watching the postal cars as they would come in, and then uh, he wasn't as mobile then, so he kind of stayed local to Denver. Booby was a house housewife. Um, in Denver. In Denver. They were Denverites. They were Denverites who had moved from Pittsburgh, whose family ultimately, from prior to Pittsburgh, their, their parents and grandparents came from Russia. Right. You know, like so many others. Although I heard one of my mother's relatives, or I think uh, her bubby got married in Kiev. Nice. In Ukraine. Nice, So yeah. I have a little right. outside the pale of settlement. Although Ukraine was too. Right. We're both Ashkenazi Jews. Correct. Right? Big time. I didn't know your grandpa was named Harry, just like Harry Silverman. Right. What are the odds? Yeah. Anyway, I loved my Uncle Nate, and he was the only Republican in my family. And I don't know where he got it from, but maybe it was part of being married to a Feinsilver because Shermie Feinsilver was a Republican, gets appointed to the federal bench by Nixon. But before that, if you can believe it, I would watch the elections with my father, and they voted for Denver judges. And far and away, the number one winner every time was Sherman Feinsilver. We took a lot of pride in that. And he was a Republican. How did that happen? You know, I don't know the roots of that, but I know that Sherman was considered just an average guy that had done well and always represented the community. And as a from the age when I could kind of recognize, and I would go see him downtown and walk 
downtown with him. Usually we'd go eat. You know, eating is a Jewish thing, but really a fine silver thing and a silverman thing. We would go to eat, and the people that knew him legally had great deference. It was, oh, hello, Judge Feinsilver. But the people that knew him otherwise, and there were dramatically more who knew him just as a guy from Denver, would would say, oh, Shermie, how are you? And they would flock and gravitate to him because he was just a guy who had done well and maybe exceeded what you know many thought that people did on the West Side. So it was really neat to be with him and see you know, the recognition. Right, but those campaigns, do you remember that? I to do. have your dad on the ballot? What yes. was that like? So it was very strange because you know people would come over and then you would watch on the news and they would show flashes even then and it would show that you know he would receive more votes as a judge to be retained than some of the you know uh, uh, statewide people right. you know he was a judge uh, and and this was he was a Denver judge and his numbers were staggering many times he beat you know the the highest counted mayoral candidate in and many elections and it's not like his name was Smith, or right? He didn't look like a Nashkenazi Jew, like you and me, with the name Silverman and Fine Silver. Yet here was Denver, Colorado, giving him the most votes. And also, you ran with party labels. So I just felt that was great. There was a two party system in Denver. People didn't really care about your ethnicity. And then, how did it happen that he gets appointed to the federal bench? So what happened was he started getting phone calls from two senators. And I remember one was Senator Allett and the other escapes my memory. And they started, people from their office started Dominic. calling. I bet it was Peter Dominic. Possibly. Keep and going. So they started calling and saying, you know, there's some talk that you might make the federal bench, but it's a long shot because Jewish, you know, there's never been a Jewish federal judge. And uh, there are very few Jewish judges to begin with. And then kind of there was a groundswell and then finally he would miss some nights for dinner and go and have meetings and long story short um he had a tentative appointment pending you know approval from uh the big court and uh he got called um on two days before Yom Kippur I don't remember what year uh to go and appear to see if he would be approved as a nominee to the uh, federal bench. And I remember him tearing up and, and calling the rabbi and saying, Rabbi, they want me to come and, and testify and appear and, and have an interrogation on uh, Kol Nidre night. And then my confirmation would be on Yom Kippur. He said, I don't know if in good conscience I can go. And I remember sitting at the table while he's having that conversation with our rabbi. And the rabbi said, Shermie, you have to go because you're, you've been called to represent the law, to represent something that you love, to represent an institution, but also to represent our people. So Shermie went and got confirmed and hence became a federal judge. Did he know Nixon? Did he meet Nixon? Nixon commented on many of his cases and on Shermie's writing. And Shermie always looked upon himself as inferior. So almost every night, Shermie would sit and study. He would read the law, study the law, and he was writing forever. There were hundreds and hundreds of legal paper, pieces of legal paper filled out with him writing about the law and his observations in court cases. And so he studied every night and wrote till 10.30 or 11. And then I remember as a little boy, you know, 
he would say goodbye and he'd jet out the door at 6, 6.15 and, and go. And he, he never deviated from that. And on weekends, he might take a half hour to just relax a little bit, but he was again writing and studying and reading. And I think that, and I often asked him, and he said to me, he said, uh, I said, why, why so much work, you know, Dad? As he got older, I called him Papa, and he said to me, he said, Sonny, he said, I didn't go to Harvard and it, or I didn't go to Columbia. He said, I went to a law school, and he said, I thank heaven that I had the opportunity, but I have to work a little bit harder um, to prove myself, and I'm not going to let anybody down. There are a lot of people counting on me who have invested in me and believe in me. And he said, but at the end of the day, Sonny, who I am is I'm a kid with really bad skin, and I was self-conscious about my skin. You know my story about law school, and I have to work a little bit harder because I didn't have quite as much or near as much as most of the judges that serve. And I got it. I understood. He also had lifetime tenure, and he could have just relaxed. Correct. said... Sort of like your story as an educator. Right. You know, once you got in, you could have coasted in. But that's not the fine silver way. I want to, I mean, we could go on forever about your father. He rose to be top judge around here, famous decades of service to the federal court. But your mama, Annette, she's a force of nature, too. And as I recall, she got very involved with the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court. Tell everybody about your mama. She did. She was involved, and she began to, uh, she did real estate for a while later, but she uh, started to volunteer, and she chaired the first two or three Channel 9 health fairs. And then she donated time uh, uh, with Minya Sui, who was with the city of Denver, and she volunteered to help people who were moving in uh, to Denver with language, with uh, classes on, on how to, on the economy. And so she volunteered her time. And then as Shermie got very involved in volunteering with the, the uh, visually and uh, hearing impaired, my mom then took that over. And she, two or three nights a week, was out of the house and volunteering as Shermie was, just trying to give back. So she was very, very, very dedicated to giving up her time as well. Maybe they were trying to get away from the skunks and the raccoons and yeah. all that crap you kept bringing over. Very likely. And we grew up like a block and a half from GW. Let's just talk about our upbringing because it's part of your book. Right. Denver Public Schools was cool. I met you when I transferred to Ballas. I started at Ellis. Right. Grew up in Virginia Village. Then we moved to what's called Lee Downs. If you go straight up exposition from GW, about a block and a half up, that's the Fine Silver House. She had a mailbox right there in Correct. front of your house, probably because your dad was a federal judge. Some favoritism, I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember how that ended up there Anyway, either. but we were around the block on Walsh, Walsh Place. Walsh Place, right. And we had a good basketball uh, action there. You did. Yes. Yes, you did, and you had a balcony, and man, I was right. in heaven when Nancy would come out and watch uh, for a minute. But I remember that. You had a balcony. That's probably why you didn't have a good chance. If she could she saw me play basketball. Ride. I might have had a better chance. You almost knocked down that backboard a few times. Yeah, it was bad. It? it was bad. But I, I loved playing. So, yeah. You're a sports legend. It grows through your kids. It's unbelievable. And uh, But let's go back to when we were growing up because it was tumultuous times. Some would say the beginning of the end for DPS, but I don't know what it was. 
I think about these poor kids worried about violence. I sure do remember when my brother was a senior at GW and they had a riot for two weeks. It was in Luck Magazine or Life Magazine. And uh, it frightened the crap out of me. I'm at Hill Junior High, which was roughing up, right? Right. We were going through desegregation. The basketball games were wars every day. But I didn't think there would be riots and shutdowns. And I thought, am I going to live through high school, which is kind of a common thought today, terrible thought. Kids shouldn't have to think like that. Were you scared a little bit when the GW riot happened? So... At Hill, when we were together, I was very worried. But at that time, I was playing ore digger football. So we had a feeder team for eighth and ninth graders called the ore diggers. So I was playing football, and my circle included, like yours, because we were athletes, kids from everywhere. And so we were buffered from the judgment and hatred that a lot of kids saw. And I think that kind of saved you and it saved me because we were allowed to continue to love our sports and our teammates. At yeah, one I point, played Ortigers baseball. So right, I know exactly so same Mr. thing. Skadden, yeah. Right, and so when we went to GW, it was tumultuous, but we had relationships with kids from everywhere, so it yes. was different for us. Now, at one point, and you may not remember, um, they sent us home for two days because there were some predictions of violence and they sent us home and then they actually brought myself in, Chris Colley, who's now a magistrate, mm-hmm. and Benny Hoffman, um, some of the football players, and they brought us in to serve on a panel to see what we could do to get along and, and have us go out with our words and try to calm the violence down. And so our sophomore year... They shut school down for a day or two. The second day without school, they brought us in and, and had us talk. And then we went out there, and then we escaped the real, real tough violence that had affected George Washington the year before. And then things kind of started to get a little bit better. Yes. We became more accepting. The other students, we were always accepting because we, you know, if you're sweating with somebody and bleeding with somebody and going through the agony of, you know, practice and coaches, it's a little so you different. you don't have to do that in golf. Well, you know, in, in basketball, baseball, I did break my wrist. Right, more baseball, but I mean, you like those blood and gore sports, and my God, it, it's amazing. And I love my high school experience. I would not trade it. And I think you've diagnosed it. Those guys ahead of us, they were just thrown in together without knowing each other first. Through my law practice and radio career, I've interviewed people who kind of explained to me the genesis of that riot. Have you ever heard it? You're such a GW historian. Tell me how you understand that riot started. Well, I have heard. Wasn't it some athletes? Right. I have heard that it started in the auditorium with some names, and then I heard that it spilled into the hallways and that the athletes were at one point trying to keep people apart because they you know, didn't really feel the animosity that others were feeling. And at one point, the, nor- the uh, lobby by the lunchroom um, was covered with benches and seating, and kids would go there and sit cordially. And at one point, that whole area was destructed. And that was the time when the news folks came in, and Time, Look, and Newsweek were there during the times where there was really a lot of friction and a lot of violence. Dang. And then we did come together. We graduated the class of 74. And I I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. What a time at GW. It was amazing. And 
you know, it was a vibrant school because it ended up that way. They had gone to split sessions, but the school in total housed 3,000 students. We became the biggest, you know, high school in the state with 3,000 students split sessions and uh, rose to prominence academically with a brand new computer program. And athletically, that year we had 14 sanctioned sports in our year, thank heaven, we won nine or 10 championships of the 14 sports. And so, you know, the prominence, our, we had ROTC, we had all the classes, we had speech, drama, debate, a, amazing music department, theater, drama. And so we really had it going on for a long time there during that run. Now, how many years have you spent at GW? 35. So uh, I came uh, over in 87 from Montbello. Right. As, a, as the football coach, the wrestling coach, PE teacher, science teacher, you've done it all. Correct. And when I left Montbello, which was hard because they gave me a chance when I knew nothing. I was a bad teacher. You don't ever start out knowing what you're doing. But it, I spent seven great years at Montbello. My mentor is there, Coach Hall. He was there. The George Washington teaching coaching job opened up, and I applied and, and was fortunate enough to get the job replacing Bill P.A. as the head coach. And I got the job. I love Mr. P.A. Yes. Going. And so he I, was my sophomore basketball coach. Right. He believed in me. Right. And so I get the job, and I'm at GW, and everybody says you can't go back home. But to be honest, I did, and I have been home because it's never been like a job. It's been a matter of leaving a big family, seven children, um, and going just to a bigger family. And it's still like that. And the circle has grown dramatically. And every day now, the school has given up. Every day I've got students, even today was a test day, students check in at the front desk and they come to see me to check in. And now it's some days three, some days five, occasionally only one or two. But, you know, in a given week, 10, 12, 15 students just come by, some from as far back is the Montbello days, you know, when I was at Montbello. And so that's a wonderful thing that that family circle has grown so much. It's wonderful that you have that perspective. And we are going to get to that. And you had so many decisions about who to put in, who to put out. First of all, to see my name in here, that was pretty darn nice of you. And you had so many coaches in your life that have been impactful. But you mentioned one that we had in common, and he has recognized it. Denver Prep League's baseball field, Tommy Marquez. Yes. Helped me perfect a curveball, and I thought he was a wonderful coach of baseball, but you had him for football, right? Yes. What a great guy. Talk about that DPS legend. Right. There's a reason they named that field after him. Right. So he was the coach that would look you in the eye and be completely straight with you. And he was would not hesitate to say to you in the hallway or come over to your desk because he was a science teacher. And he would say to you, uh, fine, Silver, that assignment you gave me, uh, it's not okay, redo it. And you looked at him and said, yes, coach. He made you reach your potential, whether you were playing football or baseball, but in everything that you did and would always tell you straight up. And then I'll never forget a football practice. You know, I thought I was doing okay. And at the end of practice, he said, we found a tough football player today. Stevie Feinsilver is joining the ranks of one of the toughest guys on the team right now. And to me, that was the highest form of flattery because he didn't just roll with praise like that. And so he was a legendary man, but a legendary coach who was always straight with you. And then he left to become a uh, GW to go into administration at Manual because he said that he wanted to – 
try to be impactful of a different group from a different neighborhood. And he did that, had a great career at Manual, and then ultimately retired. And it's appropriate that uh, the field is named uh, after him. One of your many mentors. Yes. You like when your students call you coach, right? Correct. Correct. And his son, Tim, and I have become very friends, very good friends. And Tim has been, you know, just a supporter financially and otherwise of the Denver Public Schools. And he and I have become good friends and uh, talk frequently about Coach, uh, Coach, and the Coach is still alive. And at some point, I'm going to go and, and see him and say hello to Coach. Yeah, he's still around. Wow. Yes. Does he come to GW stuff? He hasn't for several years. Uh, he hasn't. But I think, I'm not positive, but I think he still is over on South Corona Street, you know, where they grew up. I went to his 90th birthday party at Governor's Park. I saw that on Facebook somehow. Yes. I think it was his 90th. I think so. Yeah. Good man. Amazing they don't come guy. any finer than, so, that, than that man and that family. All right. Talk about GW. Well, now, before you do that, I have to go back to a couple of things. Okay. One, do you remember the day when a recruiter from a little college named Harvard came to GW? It said, do you I remember? don't. Oh, I, I sort of do. A guy wanted to talk to, uh, I think, you and me about recruiting, but he didn't have the right validation from DPS headquarters, so they made him go away. I kind of remember that. Really? Yeah, Maybe um, it was another kid. Right. Maybe. Yeah. Anyway, I, I was just thinking of my frustration because much as I loved Coach Weimer for letting me shoot a lot, you know, in basketball, but I... I didn't feel like he went all out to see that I got the best college opportunities. That's something that you've done as coach. And that's probably a lesson you learned because when you left GW, you were all city and football, right? What position did you play? Offensive guard. And then all I played defensive tackle. And you were all city wrestler. Correct. And you track and all that sort right. of thing. And so did you think that GW went to bat for you to get you recruited? Not very much. Yeah, not very much. So I went to Northern Colorado and then ultimately, as you said earlier, got cut. And then I realized, and, and thanks for bringing it up, I realized that as a coach, if you're going to really expect a lot from the young people and work them hard and with our program, you know, make them then on Tuesday and Wednesday nights go to a study hall where they sit like military, studying for from 5.15 to 6.30, and it's something you do for 24, 25 years. You believe in the academics that much. If you do that and the kids are loyal and they work hard and they're good citizens and they play hard, then your obligation back is to be loyal and try to open doors. And I think one of the things that has been the most amazing thing at GW and as a coach is that I've had um, – 317 kids who went and played a year or more of college football. But more importantly, I've been a part of helping place 700 George Washington athletes from other sports as well by opening doors nice. and by calling coaches and by writing letters. And I've uh, been very lucky to have 50 Division One football players and 13 of our GW football Some players. Some unbelievable players. Your football program, Fred Harris. Yeah, he's Montbello. Yeah, yes. he won the, the he won the uh, Steinmark Award. Maurice Frelo won the Golden Helmet Award. Um, you know, many all-state players and kids that football kids that have that played in thirteen major bowl games. And then, not to mention, even now, Tommy Broplay, who's playing professional basketball in Spain, he'll retire soon, but he's on the Nuggets summer team. Um, 
so Chauncey Billups. You know, I can go on. Matt Hartle played in two Rose Bowls he's written about in the book because he, he passed away way too early. And so, so many great athletes, but all with things in common to where they had the grind and the drive to be great. And that's what's kept me in coaching all these years. Even though I gave up football in 2011, I came back three years ago to jump into the wrestling just because, you know, that coaching, when it gets into your psyche and your blood, you know, that's who you are. You because know, at the end of the day, so good at it. But let's go back to your athletic career because both of us had a little bit of a, the same experience. We had to realize, hey, we're probably not going to be pro athletes, but we can have fun playing at a smaller college. And you describe yourself in the book that you were too little trying to play line on offense, defense at 220. So, damn, you got big, man. How big did you get? Well, I was told by the head coach at UNC that I would never play college football. And then, you know, my parents wanted me to try it again and kind of um, go back and ask for another chance. And I just couldn't do it. So I, at some point, had to take a big gulp and tell my mom and dad, say, you know, I'm going to go somewhere else. And I started lifting weights and got up to 235, 240. I decided that after getting cut from the team at Northern Colorado that I would um, – go back for the first semester and see what offers might be out there for me. And so I started lifting weights, and by mid-year, mid-semester, well, about December of that year, um, got up to 245, 250, and was lifting daily running. It was a tough regiment, but I knew I needed to prove something. And then I went to visit for wrestling a couple schools. I went to visit Ball State for football. They thought I was too small, had a chance, northern Arizona, and then a uh, gentleman who had been the line coach as a graduate assistant at Northern Colorado, he's in law school at Washburn University, and he gives them my name saying, I got a chance to be pretty good, and they were pretty good at that time. So they called and said, listen, you got a recommendation from Bob Carlson. We'd like to offer you $300. Now, I'm not very athletic, but at that point, for that $300 and some belief, I, was, I would, would have been ready to try a cartwheel. Okay. So I then tell my parents, I think I may go to Washburn. And so I tell them I'm coming. So I end up at Washburn at mid-year for $300. Okay. And I'm in heaven and I see their weight room. It's antiquated, but they got weights. And then I see they have a stadium locked, but I can hop a fence. You know, that's what we do. We did. And so I start working out there. And then before the spring workout started, I'm up to about 255, 258, pushing some nice weight. Spring drills come around. It wasn't officially padded up spring ball, but, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they're looking around like, well, who's this dude? Because he shuts his mouth. His numbers in the weight room are better, and he's athletically, you know, as good or better than who we have. So I got named as a tentative starter in the spring, and then they brought me in and said, uh, $300 isn't enough. We'd like to pay tuition, books, and fees. And I'm like, Really? And they're like, yes, and if you give us some time, we think that you can become an RA, resident assistant, and that'll pay room and board. And within four or five months, all of that was happening. So I'm now at Washburn. Falls, the, the football's ready to start. I knew I had to officially earn the position, but, you know, now I'm 270. And, and you know, people didn't know well because you don't sit and tell people, well, I did this or I said – sacrifice that you don't do it so i am there and then fall you know football starts and uh within a short period of time i'm a starter and my dad is there for my first football game ever 
How far is Washburn from Denver? Uh, back then it was an 11 and a half, 12 hour drive. Now it's about nine. Okay. So my dad was there. He had a friend of the family take him, and it's a home game against, I think, St. Mary's of the Plain, a Division II school in Kansas. And I'll never forget the moment when Moore Bowl babysat six or 7,000 people. That was the Washburn Stadium. Right. I'll never forget they introduced the offense, and I run out and uh, look up in the stands, and my dad's crying. And I'm crying too. And the tears we were crying was not about the fact that, you know, it was about the fact that we both knew the journey and what it took to be there. And he was able to see probably 20 or probably 18 or 20 games and uh, ended up, you know, 278, had an amazing career, got some accolades, and then I'll be darned if I get called in March of after the football season a gentleman named named Nick Nicolau called and said, you know, I'm with the Montreal Alouettes and we'd like to draft you. We may not, but we're going to for sure offer you a trout because you really ain't bad. And I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. You know, I started with $300 and now, you know, I have a chance to maybe go and try out. And so that did happen. It was not a long tryout. Um, they wanted to put me on taxi squad, which is not a good thing. So that means you, you can be at Edmonton one, one week you can be in Calgary one week. And their training camp that I went to was in North Carolina. And I had done well, but not well enough to officially make the team there. But they thought I had enough potential. It was kind of the Canadian League's developmental people. And so at that point, I decided, you know, I'm going to go back and teach. I got a teaching certificate. I'm going back home. Applied for teaching jobs. I'm working construction. And all of a sudden, I get called for a teaching interview my first teaching gig, and I got the job. They took out the contract, and the number said $11,500. And it said a clause in there, and if you coach, another $710. And I thought to myself, that is an amazingly huge amount what of money. What year was that? 79. So I signed up, and I signed my first teaching contract. What I don't put in the book is... A week later, after I signed the contract, uh, the Kansas City Chiefs call. And they said, listen, you're not bad. You'll never be a starter, but will you come into camp? Because you could probably be a backup. And I said, probably not. You know, I think I'm going to teach. And then two or three days later, the Broncos called and said, is there a chance that you would come in and try it? And I said, well, let's see what happens. I'm going to teach for a year and keep lifting and training. And so I did have a chance. But at the end of the day, I knew I wasn't ever going to be wow. a starter. I wasn't going to be a starter. And, and I was a little weepy because I was only 6'1". Six, six and I thought in my mind, because one of the coaches in Canada said, Fine, Silver, if you were 6'3 or 6'4, you're, for sure you'd be on the team here. So he, that got stuck in my brain, got a little delicate. And then a guy from uh, the Steelers named Terry Long at 5'11", he didn't listen to that message. He makes the Steelers team, and he's a seven-year All-Pro playing the same position. So different outlook, but no regrets that I started you teaching. You out all right, and you got a little weepy here. There are Kleenex right here. I appreciate and if you it. get that emotional about your dad being in the crowd, Yeah. are you going to cry like a baby when we start talking about your kids? I might. That's yeah. okay. Yeah. In fact, let's... Let's just forget about football because wrestling has proved to be the fine silver thing. Explain how wrestling and you got together 
and why it's been such great relationship. Thank you. So um, our girls were friends with, were student assistants for Mike Learning, who was the wrestling coach. So Felicia's the oldest. And she, and, and I never pushed wrestling, but they knew that I had wrestled and played football. So she was close to Coach Luring, who's a wrestling coach, and she becomes a student attist, uh, assist, and she's a wrestling manager. And then Mary helped with the wrestling, was scoring, but she had- These had are some, your daughters? Yes. Okay. So Mary have Barry- seven kids, and right. honestly, I can't keep them all straight. <laughs> I can't either. Okay. So Mary is the middle, and she's tied up a little bit with wrestling and helping with scoring, but never was a manager. And then Becca, Rebecca, the youngest, she's all in. She's Where, a wrestler. Cherry Creek High School? Correct. Okay. She's there. And then what happened with the boys was they tried wrestling. They really liked it, and then I let it go because I didn't want to push wrestling, nor did I want to push football. And I'll be darned if Joshy says to me, Dad, how uh, – I don't remember what year, maybe 05, 06. He says, Dad, how come we're not wrestling? I said, well, you haven't asked. He said, well, can we? So I sign them up for wrestling, and they start going to Little Bruins in Cherry Creek, and they, they start wrestling. And then next thing I know, they really like it, and they're going two or three nights a week to Cherry Creek to wrestle. And at that point, I said to myself, you know, this is their choice. I'm going to sit in the hallway or sit in the car. I, I'm, not, I'm their dad. I buy the groceries you know, I'm going to make sure they're respectful at school, and I'm backing away. Okay, so they go to Little Bruins and wrestle, and then they started liking it so much, I called Adrian Green, who's written the forward to the book, former student athlete, but a young man, excellent coach, who I admired. I said, Adrian, boys want to wrestle a lot. What's the optimal number of matches to where they'll have fresh wrestling legs if they should choose to do it in college? He said, stop them at 35 or 40. And I said, Adrian, a lot of these kids wrestle in youth and they wrestle 150, 200 matches a year. He said, no. He said, stop them if they choose to do it later. So I listened to his advice and the boys started wrestling and then um, Zach and Mitch. How come you didn't know all this? You were a champion wrestler. I didn't know. Because you just wrestled whoever went over. Right. You it was different then. Right. And stuff like that. Right. So I didn't know. And so. But for your boys, you're trying to save them, give them a long I did, career. Correct. There's only so many matches in any person. Right. And so, well, I think I didn't know. So I got guidance. And so after their freshman year, Zach and Mitch made the lineup qualified for state and were riding around in my truck in June after Zach and Mitch's freshman year, my old 92 truck, getting ready to go to the 7, 7-Eleven. You know, we grew up on seeds and Slurpees. That's just how we always rolled. So we're riding around and Zach says- Still my staples. Keep going. And Zach says, Dad, I think Mitch and I are going to look at Stanford, Duke, maybe University of Pennsylvania, Lehigh Air Force Academy. Um, maybe one of the Ivy Leagues, maybe Harvard. And I almost said, but I bet my tongue, I almost said, yeah, well, your old man went to a school that ain't anybody ever heard of. But I told myself, don't say that. So I said to them, and I'll never forget it. I said, you embrace the wrestling coaches if that's going to be your sport. But to help yourself with those schools, take every hard class you can, and I promise you, I'm going to keep buying groceries. And in my how, mind, how old were they when they so did this? So they were had the bigs, the big boys had just finished their freshman year, and the little boys had just finished. They were two years behind, so they had just finished their. They were going into seventh then. The bigs were going into sophomore year. The little guys were going into okay, eighth grade. Bigs, I, I Zach and Mitch. and Mitch are your bigs, right? They're the older boys, Olders. and the younger boys are Matt and Josh. Matt and Josh. 
So we're so they said that, and I thought to myself, "Wow, can this happen?" And then at that point, since I had said it, I did say to them and to Coach Luring, I said, "You know, I'm not involved. I'm the dad, and I don't believe that a dad should be actively involved in the recruiting process. So, if this should happen, I'm gonna need you and the other." coaches, Coach DuPont, amazing coaches at Cherry Creek, to guide and manage this because I won't ever speak wrestling with a coach that should call the house if that should happen. Okay. So they then had some success, and uh, they put kind of the fine silver name on the map. Uh, all four of them all state state champions. They, um, so Joshi didn't win one, but between the four, they wrestled in eight or nine state championship matches, and then uh they all wrestled for for the state championship. Mitch won two. Josh won. Uh, uh, Josh was a, a runner up. Um, Matt won one. Uh, Zachy won one. And there's so many subplots. Edward and Wakes. I'll cry Edward if I tell Wakes. any of these stories because no. that Just was right profound. Now, Josh is my favorite because I didn't win anything in wrestling either. But Josh was at one. His final year was at 126. Mitch was at 126. His final two years. Zachy was at 138. And Matt was at 152. So they were spread out. And they were in the lineup for two years together at Creek. And then in, as the college situation played forward, they were in the lineup at Duke for two okay, years how together. how many of them got wrestling scholarships? So they don't call it an athletic scholarship, but essentially they get, they get slotted for admission based on their wrestling, okay, and their academics. So they got slotted, and essentially we were very, very blessed and lucky that through the different avenues, like 95 or 96% of their school was paid for at Duke as a result of many things. Duke, one of the best schools in America. Right, and Duke, a year or two prior, so when Coach Lanham got there, and I have to talk about him because he's legend, Duke, his first year there out of the teams that had representation at the NCAA tournament was 71st, okay? Um, three, four years later, Duke had cracked the top 20 or 22, and there, there was the spell where four of the fine silvers for two years in a row qualified for the NCAA championships. I didn't know how rare that was until Coach Harris, who's a math teacher, said to me, do you know the odds of four brothers making it to the NCAAs twice? And I'm like, no. He said, your chances of winning the Powerball are better. He said, how did that happen? I said, I don't know. And and so during the recruiting process, coaches would call the house, and I would say, I'm not talking wrestling with you. I'll, I'll share the what I bought at the store. I'll tell you some funny stories. I'm going to tell you about the drywall guy loving us because you know we paid for drywall in the basement four times. I said, I'll tell you that, but I will not talk wrestling, and I didn't, and it worked for us. I do remember the coach from Harvard calling Zach and Mitch on speaker and saying to them, um, you're good wrestlers. You're not on the national radar. We're not going to recruit you. i got to be straight with you. we got better guys. Two years later, I'm at Madison Square Garden, and the same coach who had talked to the boys on speaker comes to me, and he says, uh, are you Coach Feinsilver? I said, yes. He said, I could tell because you're in green. I've heard that you would be in green. He said, I got to apologize. He said, I'm considered the dumbest coach in the NCAA because we had a chance to get your kids, and I told him no, and I didn't even know that there were two other ones. He said, they're all going to be you know, amazing, amazing wrestlers. And so 
All four boys graduated. They reached acclaim as wrestlers. And then Matt, a year ago, got his master's at Duke, and he wanted to get uh, in business systems, and he wanted to get a second. Uh, he wanted to get an MBA. Duke couldn't fund it. So then Matthew decided that uh, he would talk to Coach Lanham uh, since Duke couldn't fund it, and Matt didn't want debt to see how he felt about him entering the transfer portal. And, of course, that was a hard conversation because Coach Lanham had taken four boys who were okay nationally and really, you know, made them kind of a, a prominent name. And Coach Lanham, you know, said, yeah, let's do it. So Matt ultimately this year finished at Michigan, had a great year. And then he, along with two of the boys, so Matthew is is going to get a certificate or get most of his coursework done in social work at Michigan. Uh-huh. And he is going to stay at their regional training center, which is called the Cliff Keen Regional Training Center. And he's hoping to become a world competitor. Mitch one of the older boys and Josh live in New York city and they train at the New York city regional training center and they both wrestle internationally. And so three of the four boys will continue to wrestle internationally and represent uh, uh, the state of Israel. At what weight? Okay. So Mitch wrestles it's kilos, but roughly Mitch wrestles 174. Josh wrestles 148. Matt's bigger. He'll wrestle at 202. So they're spread out again. And the international wrestling is completely different because you're wrestling against people who do that essentially for a living, who they reach esteem in many of these countries, Kazakhstan, Belarus, Poland, um, Czechoslovakia. Their lifestyle depends on them representing their country well as wrestlers. So many of them have been in academies and schools from the age of five or six where they learn how to wrestle. And they have a wonderful life as competitors in a sport that's premier in their country, and that's who they compete against. Yeah, but look at the fine silver kids and their amazing background. And now to be wrestling for Israel, which in Hebrew literally means to wrestle with God. I mean, how cool is that? Can I get you to cry? Is there a moment when you thought my kids are wrestling for the Jewish state? What's that like? Well, and and I'm glad you brought it up because it's going to be hard. Um, I didn't know until one of the other children... um, Zachary, who's uh, Zach graduated, did the Navy, and he coaches wrestling, has has a great job going on. Zach informed me a few months ago that that people hate the fine silvers um, and that there's a lot of hatred and that they're threatened because they're um, Jewish athletes and they wear a Jewish star on their singlet representing Israel. And he shared with me that at times their their lives are threatened and that oftentimes in certain countries they have to be... uh, have to have somebody guard them, a soldier that's assigned to them with a machine gun to protect them. As the book was nearing its completion, I talked to all the kids and I said to them, you know, your old man's going to kind of crawl out of the coach's office and away from that gym and weight room and likely could become the voice of what education should be for all kids. How do you feel about that? And in my mind, I thought to myself, you know, if my son's have all four have represented themselves as fine silvers, as American Jews, as representatives of a culture, and been unafraid in light of what I kn- knew then, you know, that, that people hate them for that reason, um, then I better be big enough to step forward and give a message that'll help 90,000 kids in Denver and maybe kids elsewhere. And so that was the compelling 
pushed that to made me complete the book and and finish it. Wow. Now I'm going to get a little bit clumped, but uh, your kids, it sounds like they didn't talk to you about some of the anti-Semitism. Some of your boys probably didn't want to get their dad worked up about it. Am they I right? didn't want to tell me because they knew it would break my heart. And then I didn't even know that uh, at the world championships, Josh was supposed to wrestle a man from Iran. The man walked out to the mat. He had been told by the leaders of his country that he cannot wrestle the mat. He appeared at the mat and spit at my son's feet, called him a terrible name, oh, and walked geez. off the mat. And this was on, by the way, this on worldwide, this is televised worldwide. And so to, to know that, it's sad to know that they're hated, but it's uplifting to know that they're big enough to take all that comes with it to represent something that's that big to them. And that's our people. Gosh, we were so blessed, Steve, because when we grew up, thanks to our parents, the people who won World War II ahead of them, just slightly ahead of our parents, our, our dads were lucky they weren't a little older to right. fight in the war, but we really didn't experience a lot of anti-Semitism, a little this, little of that, but at GW back in the day, I like to say our basketball team was the perfect blend, four whites, four blacks, four Jews. That's right. That's right. I mean, we did great. Right. So... Ranked number one in uh, my junior year that way. But the point is that it's sad to think that our kids are going to have to deal with some anti-Jewish sentiment, and it's back. And I felt, I have felt it more in the last five years than the rest of my life combined. When I went back east to play basketball, I felt it a little. But our life has been blessed. I went to New York, saw a bunch of plays, and the Neil Diamond story it was in there that, you know, he was part of a lucky generation where his Judaism didn't hold him back, his Jewish heritage, and or Jerry Seinfeld or anybody, but now it's it's changed. And I love your courage. And honestly, we've gone uh, down different career roads, but your path to me is vital. Anybody who works with kids, they are among the anointed to me. That's one of the best things you can do with your life. And you dedicated yourself to not just raising your seven kids magnificently, all those All-Americans, champions, and they're good people. But you encountered thousands along the way. And it seems to me with a lot of institutions failing, I'm worried about the rule of law. I'm worried about elections. I'm worried about all sorts of things, but... Education has fallen by the wayside in our beautiful hometown of Denver, Colorado. And I'm no expert on it, but you are. That's what your great books, Hard Knocks and Dirty Socks, is all about. Yeah, there's some sports stuff in there, but this is a call to action. What's going on? Do we have a crisis in education here in Denver, Colorado? We absolutely do, and we have. And I'm disclosing it. And I'm telling the story from the inside um, that has that started my 15th I tell people 20 years, but my 15th year I started writing and I was hoping to catalog and just chronicle all these great stories with families because I felt like I was in it for going to be in it for a long time. So it started that way. Then at year 17 or 18 of, of uh, my career, um, I started seeing some of the flaws and blemishes and then the book has two parts. The first is a very 
comforting, agonizing, happy and sad account of my relationship with thousands of Denver children, many who are adults now, 60, 61 years old. I started when I was very young. So half of it is that with happy, sad, all kinds of emotional you know, trials and tribulations. And the other half is an expose on the public school system from somebody on the inside and the research by the people who helped me, you know, chase this dream down because it's not easy to write a book. And I got rejected. And then my dad, when he passed in 06, I hit the wall and couldn't sit and write for a year and a half. But the people that looked at this um, have determined that I'm the first, likely the first teacher from the inside in many, many years who is stepping forward and giving a message about our flaws and blemishes. And the most concerning thing to me is that through what I've seen lately for 18 or 20 years, we have completely lost focus of why we're supposed to be educators, and that's the children. We have lost them. They are faceless, invisible, and that's not acceptable. So that's the biggest issue. And the second issue is how we have been very, very good at allowing institutional racism to creep into our schools, and oftentimes we don't even know it. And that's sad to me. And the third thing is that we have done really a great job, sadly, of taking the identity from our kids that come from so many places, and we make them conform to what we think is right in education, and it's clearly not, to our curriculum, to our discipline values, and we we have created a system that is substandard, and it all the you know the Denver Public Schools says very loudly and publicly that they're data driven. But the data should show that the achievement gap is now almost a quarter of a century long. But we have excuses, lots of them. And so when we talk about the achievement gap, used to be 209, this year 206 schools, here's the message that's given. Yes, we have an achievement gap, and then they'll show us charts. Every school has a, you know, some type of presentation, a whiteboard, a big screen, big TVs around the room, and they say, and here's why we have the achievement gap. Free and reduced lunch students, English language learners, students with a designation of, of you know, special circumstances, and our minority children. And every school gets the message, and that's given to us like it's an excuse and like it's okay. After 44 years, being part of one of those groups is an opportunity. And so I once had a meeting with DPS leadership and the board two years ago, and I unplugged my computer. I was, it was a Zoom meeting, and I showed through the camera, I showed all these important people, many very high paid, and I said, look at the children on this board. I said, they have all overcome what you thought they should become, and they're part of one of your subgroups that, that you have used as an excuse, and it's not okay. And, I, and that was following me going out for 10 weeks, walking every Denver neighborhood. I went 10 weeks in a row from three to eight at night after school and then both days on the weekends and I walked every Denver neighborhood. So are you talking about a tyranny of low expectations? It's sort of like the Rockies where the owners announced before this year, hey, our goal is to be mediocre. If you go into a season with bad attitude, you can't win? Correct. We is have this, excuses. Is, is that a Denver problem or a public school Systemic. problem? It's a public of... school problem. But why it's... does Cherry Creek do a little better? Why why did we move our kids here? Cherry Creek does better because the overriding message in Cherry Creek from 
their leadership to every teacher and every employee in their district is. You are going to give these kids the best that you have. We're going to give you the money. Now, we all get the same money. You know, school financing, there are many myths about that, and that's a topic for another day. But Cherry Creek invests the most of the money they get, the pieces of the pie, go back to the schools, and the message in Cherry Creek to the whole staff is, every child in this district will have access and opportunity no matter where they come from or where they plan to go. We're going to give them that. And to the teachers, the message is, you teach these kids well. You teach these kids hard. We're going to give you what you need. Anything that takes you away from that goal to give them your best, we're going to remove it and help you with it. We're going to support you. Where did that come from? The top, from the school It has board, come from the, the top. Yes, it's just a different mindset. And what are the good school districts and what are the bad ones here in Colorado? You know, the pub, the other public schools are struggling. You know, the Denver is probably struggling the most. Aurora has some struggles, just had a change in superintendent. Douglas County is going through some struggles, not as bad. Jeffco, um, large, you know, 82, 83,000, they're struggling as well. So, though, you know, Jeffco and Denver and Aurora are really all struggling, yeah. many with the same dynamic. And, and Yet they have to absorb the majority of illegal uh, immigrants, undocumented workers. Plyler v. Doe, the burden the Supreme Court put on communities to educate everybody in their midst, that falls disproportionately on Denver and Aurora. Is that something they can ever dig out from under? They can, but they haven't. And the reason they can, and I've done, you know, I did numbers. When a kid enters the first grade till he's in, he or she is in the 12th grade, we in the public schools have spent about 15,500 hours with them. Let's say that a kid comes to us with nothing, and many do. Mom and dad haven't read to them. They haven't had math facts. Mom and dad, family, whoever they reside with, it's just busting their tail to provide a life for the kids. And that happens a lot. We take those kids you know, who are in that situation, and we don't look at them as something really important, as something shining and sterling. We don't look at them and say, we got 15,000 hours with you, and what we put out the door after right. 15,000 hours is going to be pretty amazing. We don't ever don't say that. No matter how you got here, we're going to make you right. something beautiful. Right, and when I, and so when you, ha so I've had kids who had nothing mm -hmm. sitting on my bulletin board who ended up at Yale ended up at Harvard, ended up at the Air Force Academy, ended up at CC. Kids with nothing because somebody lit that spark and told them, you can be great. And many like of them were in that book. I brothers who went to Colorado College, but that's my bias. Right. And here's something that I saw creeping in. I did 16 years at the DA's office, which is a bit of a bureaucracy, not as big as Denver Public Schools, but... There started to be diversity training and then various other human relations things we had to go to. And you write in your book about we're spending a week on training when we could be with the kids. Has it gotten too touchy-feely? Is that part of the problem? Well, that's part of it. So we go to these meetings, the district and the state mandate all these in-services and professional de development, and we'll say it's cutting edge, but, but you never talk about a kid or issues with a kid, or how to motivate a kid, or um, the fact that we now have kids openly doing, you know, vaping. 
We don't talk about violence in the schools, supporting kids that are very troubled. We don't ever talk about that. We have six days of meetings to start the school year. Then the kids come in, and that's a a teaching staff in Denver of 5,200 teachers sitting for six days in incessant meetings, and you're talking about protocol for fire alarms. You're talking about procedures for the computer. You rarely ever talk about the needs and necessities of the kids, rarely, if ever, and that's sinful. Those kids could be in school. Those the kids who were behind could be coming for half a day and getting some tutoring from 100 faculty. It never happens, and it hasn't. But I'm optimistic and believe that it will. Now, you weren't the only guy who had a crush on a girl, and I was a little developmentally delayed because I was so skinny. You haven't brought up how thin I was growing up, but I couldn't attract the kind of girl who I would be attracted to, so I didn't really have a girlfriend until Colorado College. And then we went to a Democratic primary, and I was supporting Frank Church, and she was from Minnesota, and she supported Hubert Humphrey. That's how old we are. Right, okay? right. That's 1976. Eventually, Jimmy Carter would win. Right. But uh, holy cow, I, I'm thinking as I tried to become a delegate and maybe go to the state convention or who knows, I saw that the teachers were organized down in El Paso County, and they would all vote for each other. And through the years, as I've observed politics, there hasn't been a stronger political force than the teachers' unions. You've been a teacher for over 40 years. Did you have to join the union? Do you think that the teachers' unions bear any responsibility for the state of public education? You're an expert. How do you feel about all that? So I am not in the union um, for some some reasons that had you know took place. Let's see, thirty seven, thirty eight years ago. Another story, but I think the teachers' unions have some power, but not enough teachers. And I'm talking about my profession now, including me. I'm part of it, so I'm not making this a you them issue. We've lost our voice, but we haven't exercised it. So we have tolerated and allowed. We own part of the problem. Because we've allowed, looked the other way, lowered the standards, enabled, and instead of putting our foot down and saying, no, this is not what's best for our kids, we just become silent, figuring that it's too big of a battle to fight. And there's no secret. At 40-some years or 33 years, 35 years, many teachers are tired, vermished, and they're ready to be done. And the longer I've taught, the more angry and convicted I am that this has to change. And so that's why I've stepped out and have decided that I'm, if I have to, and I hope I can, I'm going to be the voice of that change because we can do much better. Good. Now we're talking some Yiddish. You're finished, which means you're kind of finished. You're fed up. You're willing to spill the beans. You're still at GW. You understand what's going on in the schools right now. Is there a violence problem? How bad is it? We talked about how we were a little scared back in the day. Is it worse? Is it better? What's going on? So years ago when we had kids that were prone to violence, so let's go back when I got to GW, 87, 88, 89. As a teacher. Right. I go there, and there were kids that were very troubled and violent, and we didn't toss them out, but they were on the radar. They had support. They had counseling. They were given a lot of attention to be able to manage their anger, their violent tendencies, and they had support. And we knew who they were. We knew that we had to be vigilant to protect all the children, including the children that were troubled, maybe even against, you know, amongst themselves, you know. 
as time has gone on, we have accepted the fact that kids are going to be uncivil, that kids are going to be violent, that kids are going to fight, that kids are going to go through these different things. And we've started many years ago to look the other way and tolerate it and allow it. And then, so as a result, we now have more troubled kids that fly under the radar that we don't know about. So since they're not identified, we can't help them, nor do we try, A. And B, the kids that come to school and, and uh, you know, want to come to school and have this wonderful vision in their mind that school's safe and conducive to learning and aren't in violent situations. And so those kids come to school and they've lost their ability to feel and be safe because of the culture that's been created. There is board policy, but we don't follow it. Incidents and acts happen, and we look the other way, and oftentimes we have these acts of violence that are not even reported. So if two kids get in a fist fight in the hallway, what happens at GW? Uh, we usually, uh, at the very most, there will be a little a phone call home, and then we kind of look the other way and hope that it won't fester up again, and oftentimes it does. Because you don't want to have a record of it? Correct. And what Everything, do you think about, certain yeah, incidents ahead. have to be reported to the state, mm -hmm. to the district and to the state. And rather than go through that, an example is my wrestling coach is coming in to practice last year. He says to me, uh, he said, I saw a kid twirling a gun in the parking lot. The gun fell. It didn't discharge. I said, you got to report it. He takes it to our administration. Well, that's a gun incident. There's a protocol that's supposed to be filed by state law, right. state statute, mm -hmm. and board policy. He tells the administrator in charge, okay? He then asks two days later, give me some feedback. They brush it under the rug. Oh, that's a gun that dropped in the parking lot. And that happens all the time. So, so in the chapter on myths, the first sentence that I start with is, in truth, any of our schools are one incident away from making the, the front page national headlines. Sadly, that played out at East High School. And it was almost like I had a crystal ball, but I didn't need to because we've let it get that way. My mama's alma mater broke my heart. I was in New York. Everybody says New York's not safe. The worst fear of violence I had was hearing about East High School while I was in Times Square. Did you know the poor people who got shot? What happened? What can you tell us about how this could happen at Denver Public School? It can happen anywhere. You know, we've had, we had a gun discharge in our parking lot uh, earlier in the year, and we don't follow protocol. And the East High situation, as that unfolds and becomes investigated, that wasn't supposed to happen. But we ended up pointing the finger and placing the blame both ways. There was a very troubled student who had uh, been, uh, from what I understand, um, relieved from his time as a student in another school district. He Cherry was Creek. at East. Yeah. He was at East and was supposed to go through procedures every day by the deans of students who have a lot on their plate. Mm -hmm. And long story short, um, two adults were shot. Prior to that, on Espelande Street, a young man uh, lost his life. Um, there's all these Part issues. Part of the state's soccer champions. Correct. He's won the basketball championship this year, but right. they can't celebrate because of all this violence. I read your book. I was startled. How many fights have you had to break up in your career, Coach Feinstein? Hundreds. Hundreds. And early on... Early on, you would break them up, and then you would say to the kid, I would take him to the dean when I first got to GW, and I'd say, you know, I want this kid. He's got to go home for three days. He was too angry. He's got to go home for five days, and that was board policy, and that would happen. 
They'd bring him back. The kid would sign a contract. He'd have to fly right. Parents would come in. That's how we used to deal with it. Now, no harm, no foul. If a teacher gets cussed out, swept under the rug, nobody says to the children anymore, and you have children and I have children, you may not talk to an adult like that. That's not okay. You're going to have to go out into this world, and you can't interact with people that way. We don't say it because we're afraid to say it. And the more we've given up and that we look at the children in our schools as being different than our own children, that's the height and the essence of institutional racism. Now, if I had to sum up your book, tell me if I'm wrong. You see a lot of give up. And that's the story of your life. You don't give up. But you see DPS, a lot of people in the business, not for the right reasons, for a paycheck, they're not trying. Am I right? It's sort of like the Rockies. They're not really trying to win a championship. You're absolutely correct. And I wrote about two students who are current, three, but two that are very recent in the last year. One was a young man named Danny who was in a wheelchair. The other is a young lady named Faith. Danny had been in a wheelchair since fourth grade. Danny's sneaking into the weight room while I'm in gym class. He ends up in the weight room. And I said to him, you know, why are you in the weight room? You know, and he said, do I have to tell you? I'm like, no, but you know, I can't have you there if I'm outside teaching class. Next day he's in the weight room. I said, what's the story? He said, I want to use the weight room. And mind you, he's in a wheelchair. And I said, well, do you have a free period? Yes. I said, sign up for my class legally. So he signs up for my class. He's now in my class. The next Friday he comes, and I have a little boxing gym from a grant. And he's in the wheelchair, and he comes in, and he says, uh, I'm here to box today. I say, you got permission? He said, my parents know, and my doctor said I could try it. I said, do it. Put on boxing gloves. And he ain't bad. Okay. And he said to me, mister, I said, what, Danny? He said, you're the first person that ever made me feel I could get out of the chair. I said, well, why wouldn't you? So I then talked to the nurse, and I said to the nurse, I want to be in touch with the doctor to see what he is and isn't able to do. The nurse gets back to me and said, doctor says if, you know, that you can teach him to box if that's what he wants to do. Long story short, he comes to me the first week of May. He said, Coach, he said, you're going to love me tomorrow. I said, Danny, I love you every day. He said, Coach, I'm coming to school without the wheelchair tomorrow. I said, do it. I said, parent, doctor permission? He said, yeah. And he comes without the wheelchair. Okay. Fast forward to this fall, we're coming in. He's now in my class, and he hadn't didn't use a wheelchair all year. The projected, you know, his projected lifestyle was going to be that he'd be tied to the chair most of his time. We come in from the football field. He had played football, and he's like, Coach, watch this. I said, what do you mean? He said, I left my backpack. He said, watch this. And he runs to the field, gets his backpack, and runs back. Wow. And I wrote about him as a kid that just had somebody believe that he could. Now you got faith. Faith won't even say here or present when I'm calling attendance for nine weeks. She won't talk. She's nonverbal. Finally, she and so I'm sure that after nine weeks uh, in class, she's going to tap out the next quarter. She's back in, and one day she answers here, and I'm like, dang, Faith talked. I said, good. A week later, she said, Coach, yes, Faith, can I box? I'm like, sure. For nine months, she comes and boxes every day. Faith graduated early in October, and she graduates as the record holder of nine different boxing events that we charted GW because she had the opportunity to find herself at something she loved. And it's just giving those kids those opportunities 
and hearing their story because every youngster has a story. We don't ask it. We're not trained to ask it. Every kid comes from somewhere. We don't ask, where are you from? Um, one of the coolest days I had this year was in December, and, and I'm about eating, even though I've been on a diet. So I said, You look great. What are you weighing these days? About 207. And what was your biggest weight ever? 313, proudly. Wow. Yeah. So I decide, I went to admin and I said, hey, I'm going to do something, you know, for about 200 kids. They're like, fine, coach, do it. And so I put out flyers and we did Coach Fino's Taste of the Nations. The rule was you had to bring something from your home, something that your family loves to eat, and you got to invite a parent. So, and I said to the admin, I went back and said, by the way, we're going to start at 1230 and the kids ain't going back to class because everybody's going to be too full. And they're like, okay, coach. So we had food from 107 different families, 51 different countries. So isn't two, that the answer? 200 just, kids. Yeah. We just need teachers who are in it, dedicated. Of course. So that's what percentage what we need. of teachers are like you? Not very many because we're not trained to be. And they're not trained to have what's very comfortable for me to sit and talk to a kid and say, what's your deal? Or, or for good or bad, tell me your family story. Right. You know, help me pronounce your name. Most of the time, if we can't pronounce the name, we ask the kid, well, what do you then prefer to be called? That's where their way of saying, that's our way of saying to them, make it easy for me. And I don't do that. I agree. I, I got to respect the name. Yes. And that's where it comes from. Our mantra in there is, where you're totally. be proud that you're silver when you're doing silver. jury selection in right. denver write it down phonetically pronounce it the way the person respect. pronounces right. it. yes it shows respect right so we don't have the conversations and find out what they eat what they where you're from hey i want to know about your family i have a big map in my in the weight room a cork map first third or fourth day the kids come and they put a straight pin at their country of origin you know where their peeps came from I teach kids, one teacher, I teach kids from 57 different countries, and that's a beautiful thing. Right. But then I have a conversation, I say, well, how many of you have done this before? They're like, no. I said, well, how many of you have seen a teacher, had a teacher from your, from your home country? And most of the hands go down. And then I'll say, how many of you have had a teacher of our, of our children who are coming from other places, who's from your part of the world? And they shake their heads. And then I, my next question is, how many of you feel like outsiders at your very own school? And, and most of the hands go up. And I said to them, and I promised to them, and I'm going to say it on air, I promised them that it's going to get better. And think, I mean that. Yes. Do you think we have a special appreciation of maybe outsiders because we are Jewish? I, I don't I think so I don't because identify. our people have yeah. been oppressed. Yes. And we recognize that. And the so, vulnerability. Right. We know that. And we're vulnerable. And we know our lessons learned from anti-Semitism and the right. Holocaust. We know that. So I think we're a little more open to looking and saying, you know, at the end of the day, my journey at GW is easy because I grew up in it. I get it that you're in the basement and you got to walk up to the third floor. I get it that, you know, Colfax can be kind of rough and Colorado's slow and we grew up the same way. Now, right. did I have a little bit more? Yeah, I had mom, dad, and a dog, but I still, Skunks, yeah, I, I still lived that journey, which is a beautiful thing. So I can re readily identify with your journey because I, I traveled that journey many years ago, like you are now. Are any of your kids going to be teachers? Um, I was hoping, but I don't think so. Becca taught 
uh, ECE for a while and then got offered a better job in medical. Would you recommend it? Is it a worthy profession? I recommend it. And in as you get to the end of the book, there are 11 paragraphs that are a call to action. Tell us about it. Okay. So I, uh, in a very short window, will be meeting with the media and sending a poignant letter to DPS leadership suggesting that I'm a spokesman. It's not Steve Feinsilver's dreams and goals, that I'm a spokesman for what people have elocuted and stated for a long time, and I'm asking them to change certain things, and one is the, the rules around safety, because they espouse that the number one goal and mission of the DPS is to create safe schools, and clearly we don't have that. So I'm going to ask for immediate plans for safety in the schools, including intense counseling for the kids that are the most troubled, even if they have to be contained and get counseling throughout the day, that days don't go by where those kids are left alone, that we protect those kids from themselves and from others that they could hurt, and that we have a safety plan for the other students to where kids who feel in peril and in fear are able at any moment to let somebody know and that there be an awareness of the weapons okay, and the violence that, that's going on openly at our schools. So I'm asking for that, number one, to make the school safe in those ways, and there's an action plan. I'm asking for an immediate, immediate change in the way that we recruit uh, teachers and staff of color. Um, we are at the lowest, uh, 19th or 20th, for our rate of hiring minority applicants. And so through a group that I'm with, Denver Youth Initiative, I sent letters to many schools years ago asking for great candidates who can go into education, who come from their schools, including 61 of the HBCUs, the historically black colleges and universities. And Denver says they've been doing a marvelous job of that. But many of the colleges that reached back out to me, their response to me was, wow, how nice it is. We've never heard from anybody in Denver. So I'm asking for immediate change in the way we recruit and hire people because our teachers and staff have to look like the students that we serve, and they don't. That's number two. Number three, I'm asking for them to stop using the excuses related to the achievement gap. And I have a plan that adults in the community and, and students that have been through some things immediately become mentors to one or two students who are currently struggling in kindergarten, first and second grade. We can't talk about the achievement gap with numbers. We have to pair people up with these kids that are needy and embrace them and help them get where they need to be. And it can happen. And it should happen. So that's number three, tutor mentors. Number four, that immediately this year, starting in summer break, that we get 100 curriculum spe specialists. That's about how many we have hired. And that we immediately revamp the curriculum because it's a bad one. We promised the public that we were going to reset after the pandemic. And it's gotten worse than what we did at my school and the other Denver schools as we threw the kids right back in and seven out of every 10 classes, the kids are right back in front of a screen with minimal interaction. And that's sinful. That's not education. Our kids are getting nothing from that. Right. So the I'm pandemic asking, was horrible, but your book makes the point the post-pandemic period has been awful too. It's been worse. And so I'm. they have specialists and they're all high paid. They need to work all summer and revise this curriculum because it's terrible and the kids aren't engaged, nor should they be. You know, I wasn't a great student, 
but I was intrigued by things that interested me, that were prevalent, that I knew I could use. We don't even think about that now. So that needs to happen. Then I'm asking for true innovation. Do something different that's going to bring people into Denver. And quit using gentrification as a reason why we're losing kids. Because in truth, when people get older and move out of the neighborhood, younger people are moving in. And children come with younger people and younger couples. And I've been told by somebody very close to the inside that the census shows currently, the most recent census, that we're 15 to 20,000 students short of students that live in Denver who could be sitting in our chairs. But, but the public accepts us calling that gentrification. People are getting older, so there aren't as many kids. That's absolutely false. Mm-hmm. We got empty chairs. Consequently, right. $10,000 per child of money that could be coming to our, into our district because of, Denver, of what we're doing unique and creative in our schools, and they don't choose that. I want to keep going with your call to action, but homeschooling, every time I hear that, it makes me sad. Because kids are supposed to be around other kids. And if everybody homeschools, our public schools get destroyed. How do you feel about that? So when I walked the Denver neighborhoods, I kept a list of, of 200 families who homeschooled their kids. And when I would introduce myself, I'm Coach Fine, so I'm a teacher, and if necessary, show my ID. They would, uh, 200 families said to me, I, don't, I won't go near a Denver school, I homeschool. Now, if you look at what Denver reports, they're going to say it might be 180 or 200 kids. False. Kids are homeschooled at a huge rate, and kids should be in school. And if they choose to disassociate themselves with what any school can offer, that's an indictment on what we are not doing in our schools. I agree with you. School is social. School is fun. School is interactive. School sets your life up for interacting with other people and homeschooling in that situation, it doesn't help the kid with their social skills. That seems obvious to me. Keep going with your call to action. Um, the other thing I'm, I'm suggesting is, and um, I've, I know full well that uh, money is available. I think we have to have humanity leave for teachers and staff. Here's what that means. If I have something to do, if I have to take my son, Zach, to the doctor, and I'm going to be late, but they don't have to get me a sub. So they're not spending any money right. to pay a sub. I have to tell them that through protocol, and they take two hours of my time. Okay, And I believe that every person on staff in Denver should have 30 hours that they keep a loose ledger about of extra things that they've done, because we all do extra stuff. And then when they need time off that the district doesn't have to pay for, okay, they get it, and, and you call it humanity leave because DPS is notorious for taking time from teachers or taking pay from teachers, and they've not had to pay out for a sub or a replacement. That, and I'm insisting on, on bumping the teacher pay up immediately. Because I thought of, you talk about poverty. Isn't right. that part of your book? Absolutely. But it shouldn't be that little. No. No. Well, we say that we're destitute and broke, but I know for a fact that we're not. There's money. And, and we need to, and the public, you know, the, do you know how many alumni are in Denver and are DPS people? If there were an impassioned plea by somebody who people trust to say, hey, we want to do this. We want to have a bike park at this school. We want to put in a video production lab at this school. The kids need this. The kids need that. Money would flow so frequently. Hey, help us embrace our, 
our teachers. Can we come up with a fund to get every teacher an extra $5,000 to make this cost of living more palatable? That would happen if it were asked by the right person who is trusted. Now, reading that part of your book, it seems like back in the day, if I had to go somewhere, I don't know, maybe I had to play 18 or 9 holes. If I could find somebody to cover the docket for me, okay, well, that's a mental health day for Craig. Right. Seems like back in the day, if you had to go somewhere, get another teacher to cover, just don't abuse it, right? Absolutely. And now everything is so regimental and... Uh, somebody's looking over your back. All the time. What about technology? Is that part of your call to action? How is that working? Well, it does work, but we haven't met, allowed our technology to match our curriculum. If I'm a kid now, I'm going to want to learn about drones, the evolution of cell phones, and clones. I think we're teaching that. They can make it. They could make a human if they wanted to, but they don't ethically. Right. But we can. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about drones. In a short time, DoorDash is going to be replaced by a drone that's going it's to bring all, some chili cheese fries. AI. We don't talk about any of that. We're still talking about the Boston Tea Party, and that's all right. But look at these movements that have taken place. We're not talking about those and learning about those. Look at the rights because that people it's so now... it's controversial. What about that? You know, the politics. They say public school's too woke. Is that true? Well, here's the deal. People want to weigh in and jump into education. But, you know, I've been in the trenches for 44 years. So to the people at the, at the state political level, the legislators, the people who make the budget, where have you been? I ain't seen you. Have you been to GW? Where, the people that weigh in on the curriculum, the people that make millions on the standardized tests, have you been to meet me? I've been there 40 years. Where are you? You know, why haven't you, if you're really invested and you want to weigh in on education, where have you been? You haven't been in my classroom. You haven't been in the gym. You haven't been in the weight room. If you're not part of positive going on, then butt out and let the educators work on education. People want to get involved and weigh in, but they have no investment because they don't know what's out there. Wow, it seems to me that things could get a lot better if you would... Now move back to Denver, run for Denver School Board, because the leadership seems to be lacking. Have you thought about that? You know, fine silvers have won big Denver elections before. So I made one or two of the cuts for the superintendent's position, and I was shocked um, that I made it that far. Um, I would not come back in and do school board. On the Will politics. you try again to be superintendent? I don't think so, because I think now... You be the talked college- into it? <laughs> I don't know. I And I made it closer than I thought last time. And interestingly enough, when three very important entities reached out to the school board on one day to advocate for me when it looked like I might make the final five, mm. that's when they called me and told me I was wonderful uh, and and pulled the plug and said, what year we're not was moving. This, this was uh, prior to Dr. Marrero being wow. hired. Yeah, so I had had one interview videotaped you're love. young, you're 10, you're ready, you're rested. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't you think I do jump this. in there. You have the passion. That's what people need. Somebody who's homegrown, too. Um, I thought it was a natural last time because there were some very important, influential people and and many grassroots neighborhoods. There were 11 different neighborhoods supporting me. Um, but I knew the lay of the land and that because I hadn't been a 
you know, followed the path or done the right things in, in the eyes of the board, I knew that when the ultimate push for Steve Feinsilver came, I knew that they would call and, 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 you know, pull it off, pull the rug out. And they did, you know, much as I had predicted. Then next time, yeah. find silver, don't, don't give up. No, we don't, except I think I can probably affect great change with what I'm about I to do now. I want you on the school board. Would you move back to Denver? No. No, and the school, you know, that's You're tumultuous too. You're an empty too. now, right? <laughs> yeah. The yes. school board, you know, that's tumultuous. You know, I'm getting people calling me to weigh in on the school right. board, and that's not my mission now is to change that because that's for other people. My goal is to change the schools and make the schools great for 90,000 kids, and it can happen. And I believe that as people kind of rally around, you know, what Denver Youth Initiative and Coach Feinsilver is about to speak out about, I think that there will be a, a huge wave of support. So tell things me your action plan. You've got this book. If there's further action, but you're talking about making even more of a bold statement, lay it out for us. What's your dream scenario? The dream scenario is that I send um, a letter to the DPS leadership followed with some news conferences where I lay out a message with an action plan where I openly say we can be doing better and here's what I would like to see based on what thousands of people over 44 years have said to me and are passionate about. I don't think with the people who are deeply invested in education uh, being so passionate now about the change that needs to happen, I don't think that the DPS leadership could ignore that. And because of the people that want to see this happen, including media people like you, Kevin Corks at the national level, Michelle Griego's local. I think with people advocating that change should happen, I think that the voice of what I will speak on will become very, very public and agreed upon by those who want the change. At that point, because there are people who invest money and resources into the DPS who are part of the belief that we should change, I don't think that leadership could ignore it or spin it because I don't think at that point they would get much rest in ignoring the fact that this is now out there and open and, and with an action plan saying, let's change it. And in the process, let's apologize that we've underserved. Let's apologize that we have created some hopelessness in our district because we have. Now, holy cow, how are you going to attract all this attention? I have some ideas if I, you want. Yeah, I'd love some ideas. All right, you're all American sons in their singlets, maybe with the Jewish star on it, or maybe Duke uniforms, whatever. You need some dancing girls. You can bring wild animals. There you We've go. heard yeah. about your skunks. Yeah. You're going to have to do something, something to attract like attention, right? Right. I think it's a lot like the Rockies, and I've been thinking about how little enthusiasm I have for baseball. And you've known me long enough to know that I love baseball. I love basketball more, but baseball's been a love affair of my father, of mine, and I just don't feel it right now. And part of it is that statement that they want to be mediocre. Right. It just doesn't seem right to right. me. It doesn't sit well. I think... And, yeah, and so to me... The Rockies have squandered a good thing because we have the greatest fan base in the world. Right. And we'd love to embrace the winner. So it needs new ownership and all of that. I think that Denver Public Schools has some assets. 
maybe me, maybe you, maybe thousands of people who are proud of being DPS, Chauncey Billups, GW High School. Why not get people on that team again? Right. Why not organize? And toward that end, how about some school pride? I mean, for GW, for a long time, it just kind of went dormant. What are you doing about that? And do you have any exciting news in that regard? You know, the exciting news is that we named, renamed our gym after Chauncey. And I think the exciting news is that, you know, there are a number of us who are willing to embrace our past and be proud of the echoes and bring people back and say very poignantly, we need you. Open up your arms to, to 90,000 kids and their families. And as soon as we do that and say our plan is to do things different and our promise is to do things better with an action plan, I think we got a chance, and I think it's a big chance. And I also think that we need to label Denver as the first city to admit we haven't done well and to work together to change it so other cities will look at us because it's not a problem obviously unique just to Denver. But Bring, bring it back to George Washington High School. There you go. Start it there. Well, what are you going to do to instill pride back in uh, Big Green? I wore a green shirt for you today, and... When you told that story, were you wearing green for GW yes. or something else? Yes, I was wearing green. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, but I think that you know, I think that GW is in a place now. We have new leadership, but um, again, good leadership, good people, hands tied, and I think that we need to give the voice and the power to our families and co the communities to say, "Here's what we need. Here's what we want. Now help us make this happen." And I think now we're to the point with the book and the movement. And the fact that I'm not going to go away, I think we're to the point where that can happen. Is part of your plan to make GW the best high school in America again? It'd be great, yes. Monaco and Leedsdale. Gosh, it's been a great time interviewing you. What else you got for me, Steve? I mean, your family is so fantastic. Is there a website where people can follow the Wrestling Fine Silvers? You brought me a nice T-shirt. Tell us about the, the Fine Silver Wrestling Camp. So if people Google the Fine Silver Brothers, there's all kinds of things. And Mitchie has a website. Matt is building one. Josh has, I believe, has one too. Um, so yeah, Fine Silver Brothers Wrestling, it's, they're all over the internet just because, you know, they are very proud of what they've done. And, you know, they've had some great things wrestling-wise and great things academically. And then, you know, with the movement, obviously the book is on Amazon and also DenverYouthInitiative.org. We have a website. And uh, I'm really excited about where this is going, and I'm so grateful, Craig, that you allowed me to come on and spend some time with me. I think this is kind of my kickoff with the media. Um, I anticipate that there will be you know, many more opportunities like this. I'm hoping to become a panelist and really become the voice of education and what it can be in Denver and in our big cities. God bless you for that. The book, Hard Knocks and Dirty Socks, what a life you've had, Steve Feinsilver, and it sounds like you're far from finished. No, I'm not done. I still have lots of energy left, and we both know when we're going to ultimately rest, and that's not going to be for a minute. It's going to be when a rabbi is looking over a hole and they're saying some baruchas, and I've got a while, God willing, and I hope you do too before that All happens. All right, yeah, but, but regardless, when you throw the dirt, you don't have to aim for my face. Right, Okay. mine either. All right, buddy. Thanks, Steve. Thank you so much. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer. 
my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if you're, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do, but like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep. And I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887. Or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. Craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Hey, wasn't that something? Steve Fonsilver and I could go on for many more hours, and perhaps we shall. Gosh, we just barely scratched the surface. Check out our show notes for a link to his book, Hard Knocks and Dirty Socks. Through the eyes of Coach, Coach Steve Feinsilver gave his great episode 144, as did our troubadour Dave Gunders. Thank you to my buddies through the years, to you, the listeners. Tell a friend. Until next week, when I think we have Michael Johnston, possibly the next mayor of Denver, have a great one. And happy birthday to Josh and Matt Feinsilver, April 15th. It's been an honor to know the Fine Silver family. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.